This night's from Trucker's Weather Forecast. The service is WRBA and that's the Virginia. And we are at uh, 19 to the hour. So let's do this. We'll come back with some regional weather here in a little bit. Dear Kitchen Display Center. Hello? Anybody hear me? All right, you know. Mm-hmm. Let's do this. Oh, man. They haven't changed that jingle yet. <laughs> Stereophonic. What is that? <laughs> Hello, Richmond. Again. The best personalities, like Alden Aero. I would suggest you do not try this with your records. Now, who's this on the phone? Thomas. Thomas what? Haskins. Thomas, where are you from? What do you want to hear tonight? 345-WRXL. Because good friends share. You are listening to live radio, AM 1140, WRVA Richmond. So the next time you turn on the radio, it'll make you happy. Richmond's number one. Number one. We're making yeah, a psychedelic 60s. <laughs> WDC operates at a power of 100 watts from an antenna located high atop the Fine Arts Building, located on the University of Richmond campus. Tune in and turn on the time tunnel. We will be back on the air soon and can continue to take your request at 345-0106. It's Y101, Richmond's new rock. Drugs are bad. Drugs are bad. I'm just kidding. What we're going to do right here is yeah. go back. We're going to go back. <laughs> Way back. Yeah, back why not? Time. How far back? When the only people that existed were troglodytes. We now conclude our broadcast day, but please join us at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning for another day of your favorite music on The Address of the Stars. Let's take the average caveman at home, listening to his stereo. You guys remember Juice Newton? I've been on a Juice Newton tear recently. And it has to do with the uh, thrift store we go to. Uh, my name is Chris Paget. My fake radio name was Charlie. And this is the podcast, Give Me Radio or Give Me Death, my love letter to uh, Richmond Radio. So Juice Newton, she uh, was one of the voices that came out of the radio in the kitchen in the morning from WRVA when I was a kid. And uh, I think she stuck with me. I mean, obviously because of her voice, but I also think she stuck with me because her name's Juice, and who's named Juice? And when you're a kid, you're like, what is the you know what's like the third word you learn? It's like Mama, Dada, Juice. And I was like, well, this lady's name is Juice. Um, and she lingered in the back of my head, you know. And like I've talked about before, like I went down you know the alternative music rabbit hole and Nirvana and Pearl Jam and U2 and blah blah blah. And for whatever reason, in the last couple of years, Juice Newton has popped back up in my head. And recently, somebody dumped a huge collection of uh, 70s and 80s country vinyl at the Savers near me. And these Juice Newton records keep popping up. And there was a greatest hits that was in there, and it was just in rough shape, and I couldn't uh, justify the expense. But I just bought another juice newton record today and man <laughs> i encourage you go back and check out juice newton because that is some voice and her name is just fun to say i mean it's juice come on 
Uh, today's interview I recorded a long, long time ago. And like I explained in the Billy Surf episode, um, I get focused on a project and I get really excited about it and I do it and I do it and then I get to the end and I'm like, yeah, I'm done. And I move on to the next thing. Uh, and I kind of got a little excited about doing this again and I talked to Big John Trimble and I talked to today's guest, Bill Oglesby, Dr. William Oglesby. And then I kind of, you know, the flame went out a little bit. And then recently I started feeling bad about, you know, putting this interview in the can so long ago. And Bill even texted me at one point. He's like, hey, so uh, when's that thing going to go up? And I'm like, uh-huh. So here it is, finally, after <laughs> a little over a year after last speaking to Dr. William Oglesby, I'm finally putting this one out. So Bill, sorry, buddy, nothing personal. I just, you know, I, I got to get excited about the thing to do it. Uh, and I'm excited again. Uh, today, man, whew, I'm recording this on a Sunday, the, what is today, the 6th? I had an interview today, a conversation today with a lady. Oh, wow. I cannot wait to put that one out for you. So here is my conversation with uh, Dr. William Oglesby. And I started him with the same question I start everybody with. Do you remember your first air shift? Wow. That, um, that, that's, of course, you know, radio was not my primary, um, uh, mode. I, I was in TV. I certainly remember my first TV shift. Um, and I guess I remember radio in the sense that I remember the very first, uh, episode of where were you? And uh, I remember the exact date. <laughs> so, all right. So let's, let's rewind a little bit because so far everyone that I've talked to, you know, has a, a very definitive answer for that question. So, um, so w- w- how, where did you get your start in, in media period? Okay. Are we starting now? Or are we? Uh, sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, well, you know, the funny thing is that my love for media went back to, I was actually, when I was 14 years old, I was a page of the General Assembly. And back then there was a very active press room was what mm-hmm. they called it then. And in fact, the, a lot of the TV and radio reporters during General Assembly sessions would be down there all day long. And I used to just, I, I found them fascinating. And so yeah. I would just go and hang out there sometimes when I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and and I thought, I, I would really like to do this kind of thing. And uh, and then later I had a chance, uh, I won a, it was a scholarship, a two-week scholarship that was being offered by uh, Channel 12, the NBC station, mm. uh, to a radio TV institute in uh, at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I, I won that and went down for two weeks and they kind of immersed us mostly in radio, but also TV to some extent. <clears throat> and um, I was just in love at that point. So, What was it about the press room that you liked? Was it the, was it the people? Was it the activity? All of it? I think it was all of it. It was the activity, certainly, but I do think the people had a lot to do with it because there was just kind of that natural irreverence that media people have. And they would sit there and they were obviously very busy, but they still found plenty of time to joke around and they'd uh, 
Bob Brown, who was a photographer for the Richmond newspaper, still there. Yeah. But back then he was pretty new and he would put up these photographs that he would take during general assembly sessions on the floor and people would write funny captions on them and all that. <laughs> and I thought I would, uh, I can, I could live this way. This is nice. Sure. So you did that internship. So what year, what year are we talking about? When, when did that start? When I did the internship at, uh, at UNC Chapel Hill was way back in 1972. Okay. So that I was still in high school at that time. I was, yeah. I had just finished my junior year of high school and, and, you know, I kind of always went back and forth, which is why I ended up actually getting a law degree because that was also around the time of Watergate and mm. the news media became very popular at, at the time. It was a popular thing for people to do. And, uh, and I think in, in some ways it was similar to what has happened the last few years. Sometimes people referred to it as the Trump bump, mm. that, that actually people would were to some extent going to uh, journalism schools more than they had before. And that certainly happened during Watergate. And I was a little bit afraid that uh, there might not be room for me or I might not last. And so I better have something to fall back on. So I ended up going to law school and getting a law degree and then started my TV career after that. So how do you, so you, so you come out of college with a law degree and then you just, do you start cold calling TV stations saying, Hey, I mean, what, exactly. where, where was that? Where was your resume to get, to get onto <laughs> television and coming out with a law degree? I didn't have much. I had done yeah. a couple of internships during college, during undergraduate at uh, WTBR, Channel 6. Mm -hmm. But back then, you didn't really end up with much of a resume tape because most of it wasn't on tape. It was on film back then sure. for the most part. It was gradually starting to go over the tape. But um, yeah, that's a, literally what I ended up doing. Uh, when I got out of, I got out of law school, I took the bar exam. Uh, and then once I was done with that, I went around and I would, I would literally call up stations. Uh, I knew that Richmond was probably too big a market to start in on air. Mm -hmm. And so I would call Lynchburg and Roanoke and all this. And actually, I did try for some larger markets, but I found out later, as most people do, that it's better to make your mistakes in a small market anyway. Sure. But I would always tell these news directors, well, I'm going to be in town anyway tomorrow. Could I just stop by? Because they'd always say, well, I don't have anything right now. Oh, I know that, but I'm going to be in town anyway. I'd love to meet you. And so I did that. And, um, and then uh, for a while, I was also waiting tables down in Shaco Slip at a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And... Every time I would have a really bad night, I would end up making cold calls again the next day. Get me out of here. <laughs> and I happened to call WSET in Lynchburg mm -hmm. uh, after a bad night at the restaurant. And the news director said, actually, I do have an opening in our Roanoke Bureau, but I'm about to fill it. And I said, could you hold off for one day and let me come see you tomorrow? And he said... I guess so. So I went to see him and ended up getting the job. That's how so, I got in. So what was the role? Was it just cub, cub reporter in Roanoke? Yeah, it was a Roanoke bureau reporter. Uh, they had another reporter there who was the bureau chief. And, uh, and literally, I arrived that day, um, uh, the day that I started, which was in September of 82. 
I walked in and first thing he said was, we've got a strike going on. Um, here's your photographer, go cover it. And you know, you're, you just, off, you're off to the races. Like, exactly. You just, yeah. you just do it. You don't know so, what you're doing, but you do it anyway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so that was the kickoff was it was Lynchburg, but in Roanoke. Um, how long were you there? Did you move up the food chain through there? Or did you start job hopping right away? No, I, 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 I guess I moved up a little bit. I, I became the uh, weekend anchor, which mm -hmm. meant I had to drive to Lynchburg, which is where the station was actually located um, on Sundays. And they only had Sunday weekend shows. And so I, I'd drive there on Sundays and anchor. But then I was a reporter during the week in Roanoke. And I was there for a couple of years, I think two and a half years, and then had an opportunity to move up uh, to a larger, somewhat larger market, which was Greenville, South Carolina, mm -hmm. and uh, went there and was there for about three years. And lo and behold, while I was there, Channel 12 in Richmond gave me a call and said, would you be interested in working here? And I said, sure, that sounds good. And so I moved back to Richmond, which was my hometown in, uh, in 1988. And uh, was there for a number of years. And that tied into when I started the Where Were You radio feature at B103 while I was at Channel 12. So were you, was your ultimate goal to be an anchor? Did you still want to stick with the reporting? Was, you know, did, 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 get, did getting into the field kind of change your perspective on what it is that you wanted to do TV-wise? I don't know that it changed it too much, but I was, I was certainly... I didn't want to rush things. I knew I wanted to be an anchor ultimately, but I also realized that the best anchors have reporting skills. And so mm -hmm. I felt like I needed to pay my dues out in the field and, mm -hmm. and actually really never was a full-time anchor. I was, uh, I did anchoring in all three markets that I worked in, in TV, uh, but was also a reporter during all those times. Did, did actually reporting and doing the job live up to live up to what you saw in, in the, you know, in the, in the state capitol when you were 14? I think so. I think so. I really liked it back then. And I'm glad I did it when I did, to be honest with you, because mm. it's a lot different today than it was back then. You know, sure. I mean, I, I can remember there were times at Channel 12, we would have our usual morning meeting where we discuss what's going on and everybody gets their assignment and all that. And all the reporters, and we tended to have our own videographers back then who would go with us. There weren't as nearly as many one, one person bands as, uh, back then but the first thing we would do when we left um was go down and meet at the third street diner and have breakfast together yeah and uh I, I don't think they have time for that anymore they're so busy there's so many shows and they have so much to cover that i just don't think that kind of stuff is uh we, we could spend all day working on a single story back then and mm. that just doesn't happen much anymore i had a buddy who i think he went to emerson um and got his first TV gig um, in like, I mean, it was like Bozeman, Montana. I mean, it was nowheresville. Uh, and he was the only African-American man on television, local television. He you know, flew out there, 
was doing his own, you know, setting up his own camera, he was his own cameraman, own sound man, you know, shooting everything himself, editing everything himself, driving himself around in the van. Uh, and he, I just remember him telling me that it was really hard work, but he did not pay for a single meal anywhere he went. So they kind of, they kind of balanced out, you know. That is the <laughs> nice was, part. I mean, he was it, the it, guy in town. They were like, "Oh, you're the you're the guy from TV." Instantly recognizable. <laughs> yeah, that's that's amazing how that'll happen sometimes. It. Uh, I paid for plenty of meals. I didn't get mine paid for quite that often, but I. But there were a few, uh, yeah. and that was definitely uh, one of the perks of the business. You also weren't only weren't the only white guy on TV either. So right. you know that. <laughs> By far not. Yes. <laughs> uh, so you were at Channel Twelve, and then, so tell me about just tell me about that transition over to not into but over to radio. How did that yeah. all come about? Okay. Well, I got to go back a little further for that too, and that okay. would be law school. And I went to law school actually in Pepper at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. Rough okay. life, I know. And yeah, you and you uh, came back. <laughs> it, it was uh, it was great. But um, one of the things that I would do in the mornings is, of course, I would listen to the radio and plenty of radio stations out there. There was one station that I found on the dial, and I remember it was KIQQ with call letters. And they had two uh, DJs, the regular morning drive DJs, and their thing every day was to go back in time to, to whatever that day was in some previous year that would have to be, of course, in their, um, in, in their uh, you know, the music timeline that they would that they would be willing to play on that station, which okay. this is probably 1981. So I'm guessing that that probably the playlist was 1965, maybe to 81 back then. Mm -hmm. And they would go back to some prior year and they would play selected songs within the top. I don't know why they chose the top 15, but they did. And they'd go 15 to number one. They wouldn't play them all, but they'd play, they'd talk about a couple of them and then they'd play one. And this morning show would probably run about an hour and a half, maybe two hours, but I think an hour and a half. And then between the songs, they would rustle a newspaper. You'd hear the newspaper rustling and they'd be saying, oh, look what's in the news today or look what's in sports or guess who's gonna appear in town today. That and, old uh, theater of the mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it And it was... But it was all done in present tense. The difference with most oh, oldies features is that it didn't act like an oldie. It was like, we are on this day today. And I remember listening to that and really enjoyed the show. And I thought this would go over great in Richmond. Hmm. Just knowing what kind of a city Richmond was, I thought they, they would really go for something like this. But that, you know, uh, you know, I, I've told you the, the the timeline that I, you know, I finished out law school and I ended up being in Roanoke and Greenville, South Carolina. It was it was 1988 before I got back to Richmond and then had to get settled here and all that. But it eventually I thought, well, I wonder if any radio station in Richmond would be interested in this kind of thing. Huh. But of course, I had to also come to realize, you know, I'm a, I'm a TV reporter. I don't have time to do an hour and a half or two hours in the morning. And they've already got a morning drive DJ anyway. They don't need me. Yeah. So uh, I talked with my friend Bill Bevins, who at the time was at B103. Yep. And he said, you need to talk to our general manager, whose name was Bob Rich. 
-hmm. And I talked to Bob and at that time, the radio business was very different and he wanted B103 to really make a mark in Richmond. And he used as sort of his inspiration, an AM station, WRVA. And he said, what, what I would like us to do is to be sort of the WRVA of the FM dial. Interesting. And be it, you know, have a real strong Richmond identification. So he liked the idea that I had because he thought it might help him with that. So we talked about it and we, we eventually had to work it down to where it became more of a five minute feature instead of a, an hour and a half long feature each sure. day yeah. where I would talk about in, again, in present tense, what was going on in news and sports and theater and TV, maybe play a little TV theme from that day, the monsters or whatever. <laughs> and then, and then I would finish up with one song from the top 10 on that day in that year, but it was always very random. And um, anyway, uh, it, it, we were getting closer and closer to getting it on the air. And then the roof almost fell in because what happened was Bob came to me and said, I've got a problem. Uh, we've had a budget cut and mm -hmm. I can't very well hit the staff with a budget cut at the same time that I bring you on and it costs us more. And I guess it was desperation. I don't know what, what made me think of this, but I said, well, Bob, what if we got a sponsor for the show and the sponsor paid me rather than the radio station? Would that work? And he said, that might work. And so Bob and I actually got in the car and drove to Stanton, Virginia, which is where the ad agency was that handled the Pizza Hut account. And we ended up getting Pizza Hut as our first sponsor. And uh, later on, we they were for a couple of years, and later on, we had the Virginia Lottery, which was pretty new back then as a, as our sponsor. But um, that's how we saved the show, and the, the show debuted on March 11th of 1991, and it ran for five years straight on B103. And uh, and then it's you know it's run in print form since then, but that was the glory part of it was where we. Um, we ran a different show every day for five years. And was it during morning drive? When did it actually run? It actually ran, it ran twice a day. It ran at 12.15 in the afternoon. And then it ran, they wanted to run it in evening drive, but there was too much going on with the traffic and all yeah. the other stuff after five. So it would run at 4.45 PM. But what they did was they would have a Pizza Hut commercial in the five o'clock hour where they would have a contest and they said what song did we play on where oh, were you clever. At 445 and the winning caller would win some kind of pizza hut family pack or something sure so, sure yeah so we so we ran twice a day um 12 15 and 445 I mean, at the time, because I was going to ask you, you already answered the question, but at the time, that seems like such a WRVA feature. And I was going to ask you if you had pitched it to them at all, but you never really had even the opportunity to do so. No, I, I didn't. I didn't pitch it to them. Uh, you know, I think just having talked to Bill Bevins and being introduced to Bob Rich, that just seemed like the natural place to go. Um, I did have some FM stations later 
um, when we had oldie stations come along that thought it would work well there and and would approach me about coming there. But I kept it on B103 uh, for those entire five years that it ran. Um, so. So, you know, your the, the, the interview that I did chronologically prior to yours was Big John Trimble. So, you know, his, his, you know, his shadow over the Richmond radio is this big and sure. your shadow is, you know, this big, nothing personal. Right. But one of the reasons that I was interested in speaking to you is, uh, one, you did have that, you know, that piece of Richmond history, but you've also just kind of been there through so many different, you've been through all of the media in Richmond between right. TV, radio, print, and now, and now you teach media at VCU, correct? Right. What I is do. your, and your, and your, actual, I'll, I'll introduce you in the introduction as Dr. William Oglesby. Yeah, don't uh, to do that. <laughs> um, so that's one of the reasons I really wanted to, to, to speak to you was to, to kind of pick apart um, having to be in every facet of media is how the world works. Now you have to have a Twitter account. You have to be on Facebook. You have to be on TV. You got to be on the internet, you know, radio, you know, if maybe, um, yeah. So you you were kind of early to that and being in in different parts of me. Did you see the world going that way that you had to branch out into other medias, or did it just is that just the way things happened for you? It, it, it sort of it, it started with the idea, so it really wasn't my it wasn't my thought to be branching out necessarily. Um, I just thought it would be a lot of fun to do a show like that. Uh, I will tell you that it, it it surprised me because it really never occurred to me the way advertising is different in radio versus TV. You know, in TV, you're buying in a program. You might be the sponsor or you might be one of a number of sponsors of that program. But in radio, you tend to be buying time. You're buying day parts and time. And I think it really threw the the salespeople a little bit for a loop when when Bob Rich decided to go with this feature because suddenly they had to sell a feature as opposed to just time during the day. And um, I think they realized that it actually gave them um, an opportunity to sell something at a more premium rate because it was a sponsored kind of a uh, situation rather than just buying 30 seconds of ad time or whatever. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was it, it was different. There, there. I don't think there had been anything like that that was locally produced that was a franchise feature like that. Uh, I was going to say it, it was very when you talked about how you actually got it onto the air financially. You know, that's fifties. You know, Colgate. You know, sponsoring the TV show kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah very really old was. school. Yeah, it was. Yeah, as a matter of fact, they they actually early along with Pizza Hut uh, sponsoring it, they put my picture and uh, kind of an ad for the for the feature on placemats that were in all of the Richmond area. Oh, that's awesome. Well. And I remember <laughs> my bosses at the TV station weren't crazy about that. They were like, well, you know, people could be dropping pizza sauce on your face. And that's not what the image we want for our reporters and anchors and I was like wow you know but well that's and that that's another um kind of another facet of it that I was curious about um 
I really didn't do a whole lot of TV stuff. It was more just kind of a smattering of appearances tied to, you know, whatever radio show I was doing at the time. Um, but I never cared for the medium. It just didn't, it didn't appeal to me. Um, I was on an MTV production at one point in the late nineties that we were on a, we were on set for, I mean, it had to have been a 14 hour day. And the show finally came around and I was literally in it for about 90 seconds. And I'm like, yeah. I, I would give anything to get that day back <laughs> for that 90 yeah, seconds, exactly. you know? So uh, enough well, about well, me. The, that, the whole theater of the mind aspect that you talked about with radio, that, that is so true. And I, and I think because when I was a kid, I grew up listening to radio as so many mm -hmm. of us did that it really, even for me as a TV guy, it had a lot more charm in a lot of ways than TV did. Well, and that was my question. And you, with a pizza sauce on your face, was there a little <laughs> bit? Was there a little aspect of did did you or anybody at the at the television station, the Channel Twelve, see you doing this radio feature as kind of you know slumming it a little bit? I don't know. Maybe they did. I don't know. I I, I think. Um... I mean, you know, I don't think image wise, I mean, I understand that anytime somebody is employing you in a very public kind of role like that, that image is important. Uh, I don't think that I was really, it's not like I was going so far out on a limb that I was really presenting any kind of an image on radio that wouldn't transfer well to TV. Mm -hmm. um, so I think from that standpoint, uh, it, it really wasn't a... Uh, I mean, we had at the time, we had a uh, fella doing sports on TV named Wally Bruckner, who would work with me on weekends. And he was part of the Q Morning Zoo uh, for a while. Oh, no and, kidding. Yeah. So he kind of he kind of stepped out a little more than I did. But then again, a sports person can do that more so than a news person. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Um, so you're now teaching mass communications. Um, you have this you know, rich history of kind of you were at the, at the end of like what I kind of consider, especially the people that I've spoken to doing this, uh, you know, Tim Timberlake and Big John and those guys, you know, and, and Bill was a great example who, you know, go, you know, it, into the 50s and 60s and 70s. You kind of caught the tail end of that wave of independently owned stations and, you know, local ownership and saw that transition, um, like in you know, 96 with deregulation and now you're teaching in this complete completely new world at the beginning of this podcast you said right, have we started yet and that's kind of like where i think media kind of is now where it's either it's already happening and you're in it or it's this really refined polished you know laser focused product you know, there's podcasts which go for three hours and there's 30 seconds of TV time. Um, I don't even know that I really have a question here, but you've kind of seen the whole, this whole thing change. Yeah, yeah. And, and how, how do you, how do you, how, how, there's the question. How do you take what you experienced from the 70s and 80s and seeing those guys smoking cigarettes and hats to teaching the kids now who want to host podcasts and vlogs and all, you know, all the modern stuff. How does that stuff correlate? How do you, how do you bridge that gap? Well, it's still, it's still 
the need to give people what they want and what they need. I mean, that's that, that that's a good point what you're what you're saying because one of the things that I hear a lot from students is that fear because things are changing and they're worried that there won't be a place for them when they get out of uh, school and 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 actually into the media. And one of the things that I have to say to them is I can't tell you exactly what the the whole atmosphere is going to look like 10 years from now. But what I can tell you is that as long as there's a need for information, there's going to be a need for people to supply that information. I can't always tell you exactly what it's going to look like at that point, but it's still going to be there. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I can use my own experience as an example of that and how it's changed. Now, of course, the temptation always is when you started off in one world to sort of live in that world. And I, yeah. and I try very hard not to be the, hey, kids, get off my lawn kind of guy yeah. that's going to talk about how great it was back then and how it just sucks today. I try not to do that. I, I want to, you know, I, I want to, I want to live in their world. And, mm. and that means I can give them that historical perspective and from that historical perspective, I think I can give them a little hope about the future. But it also requires that I keep learning. That's the one thing, of course, when you get into teaching that you find out very quickly is that you've got to make being a student a lifelong endeavor if you're going to be a good teacher, because you've got to keep learning. For sure. So that's what I do. Is there, uh, are there aspects of modern media that you think are that you think are better? I think from the standpoint that we have a lot more time that can, that has its good and it's bad. I think that, I think that in one sense, the tremendous amount of product out there has meant that sometimes we're hearing too much news and because news feels the need to brand itself to stand out, it means that news and commentary, that whole, that whole division between those two things has blurred in many cases today. And I think that that has, in many cases, hurt the image of news. You know, that's the idea that, you know, you, you often hear people, why can't it be like the days of Walter Cronkite and all mm -hmm. that? And, you know, the fact of the matter was that you know, it wasn't quite as perfect as we make it out to be back then either. But it is it is a reasonable thing to say that we we almost get too much of it sometimes. On the other hand, that I also teach a documentary capstone course at uh, VCU. And boy, I keep telling those students, this is the golden age of documentaries. You know, mm. documentaries used to be something that were a loss leader or they would stations would run them only because they had to to show that they cared about the public interest but they were ratings disasters and <laughs> so they hated to run them and now and this is back in the days of Edward R Murrow and yeah. yet and yet today you you know people I mean, I have students, so many students who just love documentary, and there's so many opportunities to get documentaries aired and produced now compared to what they're used to be. Uh, so that that's certainly a positive, mm -hmm. I think, that we're seeing today versus 
what we had back then. I'm, I feel a little sorry for the rate for the local radio folks. I got to tell you because, you know, local radio is not what it used to be. There aren't there aren't the same opportunities. Here you are competing for air shifts against uh, you know syndicated national folks, and that, that's got to be tough. I was going to ask what percentage of your students have any interest in radio at all? Actually, a surprising number. A, a number of them really do. Um, the radio station at VCU that I know you were involved with when you were there uh, years ago, uh, that is not um, that is not specifically part of the Robertson School, which is the what we now call the Mass Communication School. Uh, it's not really a part of that anymore, um, but it is something that many students will still get involved with. And I think just, you know, be, again, you know, beggars can't be choosers in that world. And they have to, uh, they have to either, uh, if they want to be in TV, they may have to go to Bozeman, Montana, or they can, yeah. uh, they can actually perhaps find a job at uh, behind the scenes at either a radio or TV station locally yeah. so yeah there's still interest i kind of feel i was curious if, if anybody you know if I, I have a kid who is going to college next year and he wants to get into sports media specifically um and i'm curious if his idea of sitting behind a microphone like you and i are now is podcasting and not radio you know, this, right. this type of microphone that I'm using, I look at it, I go, oh, that's like a fancy radio microphone where he's like, hey, can I use your podcasting setup? You know, so I've, 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 yeah. I wonder if, you know, what, what percentage of those kids even consider radio as a career, a thing to do. And maybe, you know, news and NPR is kind of the documentary of, you know, radio at this point. The two NPR stations up here are, you know, top 10 uh, radio stations, you know. Sure. Yeah, sure. time ratings come out, you know. Yeah. And you're right. Podcasting is is definitely uh, of great interest to students today. You know, something that just didn't even exist before. But it, uh, it, it it's definitely something of great interest. And the only question is, you know, is it a is it is your role in it going to be something that you can actually put food on the table? Mm -hmm. I'll do. Mm -hmm. I'm real interested to see once once he gets into it and and. My story, I think, unfortunately, kind of inspires him a little bit that he's going to go to college for a couple of years and then get a gig. And I keep trying to tell him, like, it's not working that way. Like, you know, go go all four years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm really curious to see what his what his experience is like. Um, the great thing about being young is that you can afford to do that when you're when you're young. And then, you know, as time moves on, you you have other things that become priorities in your life that uh, where you, you need maybe a little bit more of a paycheck to uh, justify. When did you transition from being on air to, to, was it a direct transition from on air to teaching? Did you do other stuff in between? Uh, other stuff in between, actually. I, uh, when I left Channel 12, I went um, with a local public relations agency. Mm. Uh, and at the time, they were a Richmond office of a uh, Bethesda-based firm called Earl Palmer Brown. But they were in the process of going independent and employee-owned. So I had done actually some stories as a reporter at Channel 12 with them and had 
I was a little bit fascinated with them. And I had a friend who uh, had a position uh, with their ad agency that they were affiliated with. And um, it, it seemed to be an exciting kind of thing. So I went and talked to them at one point and uh, about whether they were, they, they were looking, they were doing kind of like um, 60 minutes type news magazines for clients uh, that, oh, you know, you, you got a, you got, you know, a client with uh, offices all over the country and you want to, you know, sort of produce these things to bring your folks together. And um, so they were actually looking for somebody more with media experience than with specifically public relations experience. So, and, and I can still remember talking to them and them asking me, now we are looking at a somewhat substantive change where we may break off and become our own agency and we'd like to be employee owned with the idea of having any ownership in the agency appeal to you at all. <laughs> and of course, I'm this, I'm this, you know, relatively poorly paid uh, media guy. I'm like, sure. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. and so I ended up and they became Carter Raleigh Thomas. And today, after a number of uh, mergers, they're known as Padilla. But um, but I ended up working um, for them for 10 years, really, oh, wow. between, between TV. And actually, it was during the time I was there that I started teaching as an adjunct, first at University of Richmond and then at VCU. Cool. And then, uh, you know, the way things work out, you just never know. But, I, yeah. but a, a full-time position came up at VCU um, after I had actually left there. I was kind of, I've kind of had my own little agency set up where I was doing media training and, uh, and video productions for people. Uh, but the only problem with that was that, you know, as anybody who's had their own little gig knows you have great months and you have pretty poor months and you, it's hard to know what next month is going to be like. And so when I had that opportunity to go full time with VCU, it seemed like something I would really enjoy. And so I've been doing that for a number of years now. Who in the, uh, since you've been such as, uh, I mean, you've been in Richmond, you know, most of your life at this point, who of the uh, old school media guys do you keep up with? Do you keep up with Bill and. Oh Yeah. Yeah, uh, with, with Bill, and uh, there are actually a couple of people at Channel 12 that were there when I was there, which is amazing to think about as many years as it's been. But Diane Walker was there before I even got there in 1988, and she's still there. Wow. So, yeah, there, there are all sorts of people like that. And, um, you know, back when I, you know, I didn't mention it, but back when I was in high school and knew that I loved the media, one of the things I used to do was to call up the anchor who at that time was at channel 12. I had no idea I'd eventually work there, but his name was Charles Fishburne. And, <laughs> and I would ask if I could come by and watch them do the show. And I would do that on a reasonably frequent basis. And he was always so nice. Oh, that's Very cool. seldom did he say, Bill, it's a bad day, but yeah. he would say, sure, come on by. And, and, uh, I haven't kept up with Charlie in a while, but I know he's still around. He's still doing the stories and um, um, on NPR. I know he does some stuff. And so I need to get in touch with him again. For sure. I'm pretty sure when I spoke to Tim Timberlake that I horrified him um, when this grown ass man is telling him that I used to call he and old Nero, you know, I, I, my mom would be calling me to come down for breakfast. 
uh, and and the RBA is on in the kitchen while she's making breakfast. All she's right. calling me downstairs, and I pop up on the radio talking to Tim and Alden at you know seven years old. Uh, so <laughs> really, that's pretty gutsy. You used to call them. Oh yeah, I would call Jerry Lund when I was like nine. Like I had no business calling him, and oh. I, you know, ten o'clock at night. And the same thing with Big John. And that's you know when I emailed Big John initially, I was like, I would listen to you when I wasn't supposed to be awake. You know, have the AM radio on very low next to my bed, um, and I had no idea what he was talking about, who he was, what Gerald's truck stop was. But it was just <laughs> fascinating to me. It is. Um, it's still fascinating to me. I mean, I wish, I have to tell you, I wish um, when we have this 50,000 watt clear channel powerhouse station, you know, to me, it's such a waste to carry syndicated programming because here we had Big John on from a truck stop near Richmond and literally truckers over half the country were yeah. listening to this guy at night. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and it, and exactly. I really do. I feel that way. That it it is, it's a waste. Like syndicated programming is what cable television and the internet is for. Like give local radio back to their cities. Absolutely. It's a bummer. Yeah, I mean it's such a it's such a marketing, uh, it's such a marketing bonus for Richmond when you think about it uh, to have a station like that. I can remember actually the last time that I drove back across country from law school in California and I was by myself and I was driving this particular day from Oklahoma City to Nashville. I was gonna spend the night in Nashville and I was a little late leaving. And so it was actually after dark when I was crossing the Mississippi River at Memphis. And I just thought as I was crossing the river, I thought, I wonder if there's any chance I could pick up RVA from here. And I turned to 1140 on the dial and I mean, it came through clear as a bell, just abs it was like it was it was next door. And I I just couldn't believe it. I thought, what a wonderful yeah. thing for Richmond that we're I'm, I'm crossing the Mississippi River and I'm hearing WRVA that clearly. Yeah, yeah, cool stuff. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for taking time out of your day. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, Christopher. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for helping me remember too. <laughs> um, would you be put out if uh if i put my son in touch with you at some point to kind of sit down and just chat about the college me mass media experience because he's going to be making his decision on schools soon so yeah. no i'd be happy to that'd be great no problem at all you've got my number so uh um yeah absolutely have him have him give me a call that'd be great or, right, or cool. email or whatever sure sure thing all right thanks for your time and uh if i see your daughter on the streets of uh, south boston i'll tell her you said hi yeah what's it like up there is it cold you got snow uh it's melting off it had this winter really hasn't been that bad yeah, um, yeah i was actually out on the out on the porch sitting in the sun yesterday sunning myself like a lizard it was like you know 45 degrees that's warm enough here um <laughs> but you know it's it's getting to the point where the sun feels warm again so you know that's that's a good sign and you can understand everybody, right? You can, you, you've got the accent down. To, I tell you what, man. So I've, I've lived here twice. And the first time I lived here was 96 to 2000. And one of my many jobs was DJing a nightclub on Lansdowne Street just behind Fenway Park. And, you know, it's this 
dark, you painted black, there's a dark club and you could still smoke in there. And it was this plywood box in the corner of the room. And the, of course the DJ booth was raised up a little bit. So when people would come in, I'd have to lean over yeah. um, to hear them. And I felt this tug on my pants, which was, hey, we want to make a request. And I turned around, it was this real cute brunette girl. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know. So I leaned over and I'm like, yo, what do you want to hear? And she goes, you're wicked cute. Can I have your number? And I was like, oh. I don't, I don't care if you look like Claudia Schiffer or Cindy Crawford or Audrey Hepburn. I can't, I would never be able to get past that voice. Ever. Well, you know, the funny, Salem, I've got a memory of Salem. We were up there. We had actually, this is back in like 93. We, this is the first time we took our girls who were very little back then on a long driving vacation. It was kind of a test. We were taking, we were going all over New England and we went to Salem to the witch museum, whatever mm -hmm. there. And we went and had lunch at a little place. And I still remember I walked up to the, it was one of these places where you order and pick up at, at the counter. And I went up and I asked the woman who was there was working. I said, do you have any desserts? And she said, yeah, we got the ribiflet. And I said, excuse me? She said, ribiflet. I said, <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. She points board behind her and says, ribiflet. It was a root beer floats. Mm -hmm. and, but I had never heard him called ribiflets before. Yeah. Yeah, I had no idea what she was saying to me. So when I when I moved here that first time around, the we were loading up a U-Haul at five in the morning. I mean, it was still dark uh -huh. out, and I left for my parents' house. And the last thing my mother said to me before I got—I mean, it, I could have died on the road—and this was the last thing my mother said to me: "Don't bring a Yankee girl home." <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, I did. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh... Uh, that would not work for my daughter. She's got a Yankee guy up there. So <laughs> I don't think I'll ever pull him out of Boston. <laughs> All right. Very good. Uh, Thank man. you for your time. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Thanks a lot, Christopher. All right. Take care, Bill. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. See, he's going to call me Christopher, so I'm going to call him Dr. William Oglesby. Thank you, Bill, for taking time out to talk to me. Is there a more tired trope? in interview podcasting, then thank you for taking time out of your busy data. Boy, we've taken up too much of your time. Thanks so much for your time. Seriously, though, thanks for your time. And uh, thanks for your patience, more importantly, Bill. Again, nothing personal. Just uh, It's just how I roll. My name is Chris. This is Give Me Radio or Give Me Death, my le love letter to uh, Richmond Radio. It is produced and recorded and engineered and all that good stuff by me. Thanks for listening.